I'm Ben Forrid. I'm Austin Letcher. And I'm Alyssa Mendel. And this is Chords Cast. This podcast is created by the team at the Coordination of Rare Diseases at Sanford, or CORDS for short, which is a rare disease registry working to tie together patients and researchers, no matter their condition and no matter where they are in the world. In these episodes, you'll hear interviews with scientists, physicians, rare disease patients, and advocates, along with updates on our registry and ways that you can get involved. Let's get started. Everybody, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Chords Cast. First of all, Happy New Year. I hope your 2018 was fantastic and that you're looking forward to a productive and happy 2019. Here at Chords, we had a very productive year. Uh, we've, been, we've worked with 12 new advocacy organizations to create disease-specific questionnaires. Um, Austin, we worked with nine researchers, I believe, to send out data sets um, and participated in research studies. That's right. Yeah, so it, it was, uh, we're, we're beginning to do a, a lot more um, outreach and a lot more, uh, be a lot more active in the rare disease community, which is something that we feel so fortunate to be a part of, and, and we've got some great momentum going into 2019. So um, please stay tuned to us and, and let us know, as always, if there's anything we can do for you. Um, since our last episode in December, we haven't really done uh, a whole lot of travel or, or anything like that. It's been mostly kind of head down, wrapping up the end of the year. But um, Austin, in January, you'll be going to a, a new event that we've never been to called um, Rare in the Square. It's put on by Global Genes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's right. Uh, actually, that event coincides with the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference. So that's a, a huge conference in San Francisco. And I'm hoping to connect with you know advocacy groups, uh, patients, uh, hopefully pharma companies too, as far as you know making them aware of the registry and making sure that their research and development teams know that we're here to help connect patients with clinical trials and other research opportunities, and that they know that it's a, a cost-free service, and especially you know the advocacy groups too that we can kind of help empower and help them collect patient data on. So really looking forward to it. If anyone you listening knows anyone going out uh, to that event or is in the area we'd love to hear from you Absolutely. and uh, grab a coffee yeah. kind of t- tell you a little bit more about chords and what we do and uh, maybe form a collaboration so let us know awesome and Alyssa on this episode you and Austin sat down and interviewed um, a couple folks affiliated with the Hypersomnia Foundation who did you work with yeah so we sat down with Diane Powell and Dr. Lynn Mir- Marie Trotty with the Hypersomnia Foundation. We talked about research and participation in the registry. They happen to be one of our fastest growing partnerships. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of good useful information on there. Yeah, they, they've um, only been around a few years, but they've got a large population in the courts yep. registry, which mm-hmm. is an impressive feat. Um, and they're really an active group. So yeah. um, this will be a good episode to listen to if you're a new foundation or if you um, are just finding your diagnosis. The Hypersomnia Foundation has done a great job laying some tracks for others who like to move quickly. So, um, again, happiest uh, wishes in the new year for you and, uh, and everyone you know and love. And I hope you enjoy the podcast. 
welcome to another episode of The Chords Cast. I'm Alyssa Mendel, and joining me with The Chords team, I have Austin Letcher. And we have guests here with us today, Diane Powell and Dr. Lynn Trotty with the Hypersomnia Foundation. So to get us started, you know, Diane, Dr. Trotty, what is your connection to the rare disease community? Sure. Um, this is Diane, and I am the um, uh, CEO and the chair of the board of the Hypersomnia Foundation, the leading nonprofit that um, advocates for people with hypersomnia. And this is Lynn Marie, and I am a clinical researcher and clinician at the Emory Sleep Center in Atlanta. So I do clinical research on idiopathic hypersomnia and other similar disorders, and I take care of uh, quite a number of patients who have idiopathic hypersomnia. And Dr. Charney, can you tell me what exactly is hypersomnia? So hypersomnia is a term that just is used to mean either excessive sleepiness, meaning falling asleep during the day, not really being able to wake up during the day, or really, really long sleep time, sleeping 10, 12, 14 hours in a 24-hour period, or both. And when we talk about idiopathic hypersomnia specifically, we mean those symptoms, plus often a lot of difficulty waking up in the morning, some cognitive symptoms like a feeling of brain fog. Um, it is a little bit like narcolepsy, which is a disease more people tend to have heard of in that patients are sleepy during the day, but the symptoms other than that can be pretty different than people who have narcolepsy. And the idiopathic part of idiopathic hypersomnia means that we don't actually know what causes it. We don't know why people with idiopathic hypersomnia sleep so long and are still sleepy during the day. Um, but that's why we need more research is to really get to the bottom of why this disease happens. Thank you for that, Dr. Charney. And would you say that Emory, where you work at, is that where you see the majority of hypersomnia patients, or are there clinics around the country that are specializing in this also? Well, there are sleep centers all around the country, and so there are, and all sleep specialists should be trained in diagnosing and treating idiopathic hypersomnia as part of their training. Um, and so in theory, um, you, you, you know, can be seen for idiopathic hypersomnia at a sleep disorder center um, anywhere around the country. Um, in, in practice, idiopathic hypersomnia is relatively uncommon at sleep centers. The diseases that most sleep specialists see are things like obstructive sleep apnea or insomnia. Um, and so some sleep specialists see more idiopathic hypersomnia patients than others. And so it, it is true that Emory, where I, where I am, has a specialization in idiopathic hypersomnia and other hypersomnia disorders. So we tend to see people from all over the country um, who have hypersomnia. There are a few other places in the country as well where there uh, is hypersomnia research going on and a lot of hypersomnia patients are seen. Where would those other places be? Would, do you know off the top of your head? Well, Stanford has always been a place where sleep research has, has taken place and care of sleep disorders patients. Um, and most notably, 
the story of the science behind narcolepsy was really developed among other places in, in large part at Stanford. And so they have a long, long history with disorders of sleepiness there. Uh, there's a great group at the uh, University of Wisconsin in Madison looking at hypersomnia. There's a group in Boston looking at hypersomnia. So there are a number of places now um, around the country where there's real expertise in, in this disorder. Wow, it sounds like there is becoming more and more awareness over hypersomnia. Uh, switching gears here quickly, Diane, you know, what was your decision to become an advocate? Could you tell me a little bit more how you got involved in this space? Sure, sure. Well, um, like so many people at the Hypersomnia Foundation, uh, I have someone close to me with hypersomnia, and it, it's my daughter who began having the symptoms that Dr. Trotty was describing at around uh, age 13. And it's, uh, it's also not an unusual experience that I, I took her to her pediatrician, and the pediatrician was very well-meaning and tried to think of all the things that could be causing her sleepiness. But it, she never mentioned a sleep disorder, and it didn't occur to me either. So it wasn't uh, until my daughter was in college that an alert a physician at actually at our college health center listened to her story and sent her to Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. Uh, and that was how she finally got her diagnosis of hypersomnia. So that was maybe six, seven years after she first had the symptoms. And unfortunately, that's, that's a fairly common occurrence. And I have to admit, when she first got the diagnosis, I had to try it. Um, and at first, I think I was sort of in denial. I thought, okay, she's got, she's got a diagnosis, and there'll be a treatment, and this is all going to be okay now. And it was really attending a conference that the Hypersomnia Foundation gave in Atlanta in 2015 that really opened my eyes as to what was involved, how difficult this disorder was, and what the challenges were. And from then on, there was just no question that I was going to be an advocate for people with hypersomnia. So, Diane, uh, how does that, uh, your connection with your daughter, you know, how did that lead into your involvement with the Hypersomnia Foundation? And and when did it get started? You know, how did it get started? Right. Just tell me a little bit of history. Right. Well, three volunteers sat down at a kitchen table in 2014. Um, one of the co-founders, Kat Rye, is still on the board today, and decided to, to, to start the Hypersomnia Foundation. And um, as I mentioned, I came first came in contact. I, I was searching online for information. That's the thing about mothers. When you, when you know your child has some kind of condition, you start looking for information. And I came across uh, online that the Hypersomnia Foundation had a conference in July of, I believe, July of 2015 in Atlanta. I learned so much there. There were presenters uh, like Dr. Trotty, who, who described you know, the, the difficulties in diagnosing and the, the challenges in understanding hypersomnia and, and uncovering new treatments. Um, and so when the Hypersomnia Foundation, following the conference, uh, asked me to become involved, I was happy to, to jump in and do what I could. So I became involved with the Hypersomnia Foundation and joined the board. And it's it's been a tremendous experience. And it's a really exciting time for us. We're coming up on our fifth anniversary in January. That's great. Um, I, I would kind of ask maybe Dr. Trotty the, the same question. Please. You know, how did you, <laughs> sounds like you guys met um, at a conference. Is that how you got involved, Dr. Trotty? Or what's what's your story with the Hypersomnia Foundation? Well, so I had already been taking care of patients with hypersomnia and researching hypersomnia when the Hypersomnia Foundation was formed. 
Um, and so I have been involved with the foundation basically from the beginning. I'm currently the chair of the medical advisory board to the foundation. Uh, and that's a, just a team of physicians and other sleep specialists who have a lot of experience taking care of patients with hypersomnia. And we provide input to the board of the Hypersomnia Foundation on, on whatever they need about sort of medical related issues in, in patients with hypersomnia. And so that's my official role with the Hypersomnia Foundation. I uh, have spoken at possibly all of the annual meetings so far um, because I just, I, I really love being able to share what's new and what's on the horizon and what's exciting. This is a really difficult disease for people to deal with. Um, I think it's really misunderstood sometimes by patients themselves sort of not realizing when a medical problem has happened versus sort of blaming themselves for the, the symptoms. And I think families often don't understand and employers often don't understand. And, and so it can make it even harder for people to cope with. So I think I am so grateful to the Hypersomnia Foundation on behalf of my patients because somebody needs to be out there raising awareness and there needs to be a place for patients to go to get information. And there needs to be a way that people who have this rare disease can meet other people who have it. Uh, I've heard from a lot of people uh, after the meetings that, you know, it was the first time they knew anyone else who had the same disease that they did. And imagine being diagnosed with a disease that sort of upends your life when you're, you know, a teenager or in early adulthood. And all of a sudden you have this disease that you've never heard of and you've never met anyone else who has it. Uh, and so I think there's real power in, in community. Just wanted, wanted to add that it, it is extremely difficult for people with hypersomnia because we live in a society where everybody thinks they're tired, right? So for people to grasp that this is a different kind of tired, and even for the patients to grasp it's a different kind of tired, it was heartbreaking to me when my daughter said to me, I thought everybody felt this way. It's just everyone else coped with it better than I did. So um, a lot of what we do is, is support the community. And at our conferences, we try to connect uh, people with hypersomnia. And in our last conference, we did a separate session for the families of people with hypersomnia to give them a, a forum where they can talk about how difficult it is to see their, their daughter, their friend, or whomever just to, to struggle and to try to, 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 they're losing so much out of their lives by being sleepy. Thank you for sharing that. I can really hear your guys' hearts behind this. And Dr. Chardy, I just have to ask, like, where does your passion come from to be interested in hypersomnia? Like, how did you, how did you become interested in this? I think for me, I mean, hypersomnia is certainly not the only disorder that I take care of clinically. Mm -hmm. So I see patients with all kinds of sleep disorders and, and there's lots of other disorders that I take care of where people, you know, need similar things and, uh, fortunately, there's some, some resources, you know, for other communities as well. Um, I became involved in hypersomnia research almost by accident or, or more, more to say it was, it was sort of a case of, of being in the right place at the right time, right as I was finishing my training and going into sleep medicine and trying to figure out what I wanted my clinical career to look like and what I wanted my research career to look like. There were some really exciting advances uh, happening at Emory and understanding the, the basic science, the me mechanism potentially behind idiopathic hypersomnia. And so it was pretty clear, you know, 10 years ago that what was being figured out 
you know, in a basic science lab down the street was going to have really big potential implications for patients and might change what we were able to offer patients. And so it, it was an area where it was clear that more research needed to be done. It was clear that there was a huge clinical need. And it was an area where I felt like I could potentially make a difference. So then I got really involved with the hypersomnia community and hypersomnia research. And here we are. Since you are kind of a not kind of uh, an expert in hypersomnia and these sleep disorders. <laughs> what uh, advice do you give to patients or family members of uh, you know, or anyone diagnosed with hypersomnia? I do think in medicine, we tend sort of just by the way the system is designed and by the way we're, we're trained sometimes to really focus on the medication piece of things and the treatment piece of things. And I think that's really important. There are medications that help people with idiopathic hypersomnia. There are not as many as we would like, and they don't work as well as we would like, and they don't work for everybody. And so there's a lot of work to be done. But that being said, there are plenty of people with idiopathic hypersomnia who can get on the right medication and really have a dramatic difference in the in the control of their symptoms. And so I think find a doctor that you click with, find a doctor who seems to be up to date on the research that's being done. Um, and if you don't click with the first doctor, you know, it's okay to find another doctor um, to, to really make sure the, the medical care aspect of it is taken care of. But I, I also think as you've probably heard in this conversation from both Diane and, and from me, you know, there's there's more to it than that because of the kind of disease that hypersomnia is and the way that it affects people's lives. And so I do think it's really important, uh, in addition to just sort of standard medical care, that people have both a source of support and a source of information. Uh, and, you know, certainly the Hypersomnia Foundation is, is one great resource for that. Um, that's not what that you know, has to look like for everyone. But I think being able to learn as much as possible about the disease uh, and how to how to manage it and how to live with it. And then having somebody in your corner who really gets that this is not just, you know, hey, I'm sleepy because everybody gets sleepy sometimes, but that it's really something fundamentally different who can help, uh, help support and help people cope with that. Great. Right, and because the, the treatments don't work for everybody or don't work as well for everybody. We try to provide on the Hypersomnia Foundation website as, as many resources as we can to help people cope. We have um, extension guides for education for parents of kids K through 12, for college students on how to seek accommodations and uh, how to cope, how to access online learning, disability resources, which uh, some people are, are finally not able to work and need to go on disability medical information, uh, emergency cards, and uh, provider directory. So we, we talk a lot with the community. We have a patient advocacy and advisory council that, that helps us stay in touch with the unmet needs in the community. That's awesome information, guys. I, I want to step back to something uh, Dr. Trotty mentioned earlier in our discussion, which is that I, I think you mentioned it was uncommon to see hypersomnia diagnosed in these sleep centers. I'm kind of curious as to why, and uh, on top of that, how um, a diagnosis is triggered. Is there a gene? Is there a biomarker? Um, can you el elaborate on that at all, Dr. Trotty? Sure. 
Traditionally, we say that idiopathic hypersomnia is rare. Uh, the, the real truth of it is we're not sure how rare idiopathic hypersomnia is because in order to know that for sure, what you'd really have to do is go out in the general population and see who had symptoms and see who met the diagnostic criteria to, to really know that. And certainly people have done that with other disorders. Nobody's done that with idiopathic hypersomnia because that's a pretty time and labor intensive process. In sleep clinics, often we will see, you know, other disorders are just more common. So idiopathic hypersomnia is seen less commonly. One of the things that worries me about idiopathic hypersomnia is that if you never get sent to a sleep doctor, you're never going to get diagnosed with it. And so, I mean, you sort of heard that in, in Diane's story. It takes a while sometimes before somebody says, maybe this is a sleep disorder or even worse than that. I think for some people, they never realize that their sleepiness might be a medical problem at all. And so I think there's probably people who have idiopathic hypersomnia who have just been mislabeled their whole life as, you know, lazy or, or what have you and never really even get into the medical system to be evaluated and then be given a treatment. And so I think we should be careful saying that idiopathic hypersomnia is rare. We don't really know. Um, it may just be rarely diagnosed. It may be rarely diagnosed. Uh, and part of the problem is that it is hard to diagnose in that we don't have a gene that you can just test for or any kind of blood test or a foolproof biomarker. People are diagnosed on a basis of symptoms that they have, symptoms that they don't have, and then some form of sleep testing, either a, a daytime nap test where we let people take a series of naps and sort of look at how quickly they fall asleep and what stages of sleep they go into, or just monitoring of sleep to document that people are sleeping more than 11 hours in a 24-hour period, which is not uncommon in people with idiopathic hypersomnia. Awesome. So it sounds to me like there is uh, a vital need for more research. Um, yes. <laughs> can you tell me why patients and families, and, and it might be obvious now that I've kind of alluded to that, why, why they should participate in research? Well, I... If I can just, just say, this is Diane, that um, for our community, they are very excited to be able to contribute in some way, to, to contribute their data and to help research. It's a very tangible thing that they can do, and people are very excited to do that. And, and I will say, this is Lynn Marie again, I mean, I have a, a profound gratitude for people who participate in research studies. Uh, as a researcher who is trying to figure out idiopathic hypersomnia, I could not do any of that research without people with idiopathic hypersomnia taking part in, in research studies. And sometimes the research studies are as small as, you know, letting us look at particular medical records or filling out a questionnaire. And sometimes they involve spinal taps and MRIs and PET scans and, and more, but none of it could we do without people who have these disorders being a part of the process and, and sharing their time and their, you know, selves really to, to move the research forward. So, you know, I, it is not, it is not ever lost on me that this is a team, this is a team effort. Um, 
there's so much that we don't know about idiopathic hypersomnia still. We have some compelling theories about what might cause it, but we do not understand the biology of it uh, anywhere close to fully at this point. We definitely need better tools to diagnose it than we have, and we definitely need better treatments than what we have. And so there's so much work yet to be done on, on research for idiopathic hypersomnia. I should mention that our, our registry at CORDS uh, does not just collect the data. People with idiopathic hypersomnia, uh, we collect information for people with hypersomnia, maybe secondary to a, another diagnosis like Parkinson's, related disorders like narcolepsy, types one and two, and fine modeling. Brilliant segue there, Diane. I was just going to take it there. Um, and speaking of cords, Dr. Trotty, you've actually uh, worked with us before to access the registry. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that process? And um, maybe, I don't know if you can mention yet any updates on your research, but um, how, how it went for you. Yeah, absolutely. The registry is an incredible resource. So the, as, as Diane said, people with a variety of hypersomnia diagnoses have, have entered the registry and have filled out questionnaires detailing hypersomnia symptoms and their other disorders and so on. And it is a gold mine of, of information about hypersomnia. There's some real complementary strengths between the sort of data you get in a registry and the sort of data I would get in my clinic in the sense that, you know, seeing somebody face to face, I can get some very detailed information, but I'm never going to be able to do that with 1,000, 1,300 patients, whatever the number of the registry of hypersomnia patients is up to now, especially for something that may be rare or that at least is rarely diagnosed, being able to accumulate information from so many people really can provide us insights that you won't necessarily be able to see in any one person's clinic population. And, you know, from a research standpoint, we worry a little bit about who comes to my particular clinic and is that really representative of the whole population of people who have this disorder or is there something about, you know, living in the Southeast or, or who knows that would get you to my clinic. Whereas in the registry, we're getting a, a much bigger cross section of, still mostly the U.S., but even now internationally some of, of patients with idiopathic hypersomnia. And one of the other things about the registry that's really great is it's collecting data on people over time. So we'll really be able to answer some questions that we don't have good answers for about what happened to idiopathic hypersomnia on, a, on the long term. There's some little hints in, in clinical series that maybe for some people it goes away or but we don't really know and the registry will really give us a way to get at that question that we haven't been able to get at with, with clinical data. So I feel like I have just barely started to scratch the surface of the uh, all of the information we can get from the registry. It's been a great experience for me. I've been able to you know get approval to, to download the data set on who had one of the hypersomnia conditions and I don't you know of course have anybody's name or any identifiers I just know how they answered the, the questionnaires and it's let us start looking at a number of different questions about the symptoms and sort of how symptoms cluster in people with idiopathic hypersomnia and some of these other disorders we've been fortunate enough to, to be able to present that data to other researchers at a couple of international meetings uh, and we're working right now on some papers for publication. So I'm very excited 
That's awesome. Thank you for uh, that. And uh, one last shameless plug from me. Um, to uh, I'd, I'd ask both of you to, I think, answer a question we get commonly from other patient advocacy groups out there. And it is, is it really free? <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's uh, been free for me? Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's it's wonderful. People can access um the hypersomnia registry, they can go to our website to learn that it's free, but also we have a, a page of Q&A, frequently asked questions about privacy issues. Yes, their, their information is private, and some tips for, for successfully uh, completing the registry. To, you, to your point, Austin, I would say, you know, just to, to emphasize, it's not just free for people to register, it's free for researchers to then look at the data to, to answer some of these research questions. And so it's really an incredible resource. So it sounds like free means free. Um, <laughs> so before yeah. we wrap up here, is there are there any events coming up with the Hypersomnia Foundation that people should be aware of? Is there, do you guys have a Facebook where people can find other people with this maybe? Oh, absolutely. Uh, on the homepage of our website, which is hypersomniafoundation.org, people can sign up for our monthly e-newsletter, Hypersomnia News. We're on Facebook, uh, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Uh, and we do have, we're putting together our calendar now for 2019, but it's, it's, I'm very excited about it because we're going to expand more into one day uh, patient education meetings around the country so that more people can attend, possibly including our first uh, meeting outside of the U.S., um, thinking possibly in England. And we are also going to attend meetings where we can really increase our impact on awareness. And others are going to the World Sleep Meeting and we're attending other national sick medicine meetings in the U.S. But we're also thinking about things like school counselors because it's often those middle school counselors who sent the children that are, are falling asleep in class. Psychiatric meetings, pediatric meetings. We're trying to think of not only trying to reach out to sleep medicine professionals, but other professionals that may be the first ones that come in contact with young adults with these symptoms. Awesome. Well, thank you both for joining us today. I just want to let all of, all of our listeners know that if they're interested in getting a patient advocacy group started, uh, Hypersomnia Foundation has really done a, a great job and, um, you know, we consider one of our uh, greatest success stories with them only starting a uh, short five years ago and using the registry to uh, get up. I just checked the numbers uh, a couple days ago. Almost 1,357 people, looks like, enrolled today. Mm -hmm. So I, I encourage anyone with hypersomnia that has not already enrolled to uh, go enroll or go to their website. And if you're interested in getting a patient advocacy group uh, started, go ahead, give us a, a call or email at cords at stanfordhealth.org and we can connect you to wonderful partners like uh, the Hypersomnia Foundation who we've learned from and help you get started. So Diane and Dr. Trotty, Alyssa, thank you all for joining. Thank you. Of course, it's been a terrific partner for us too. Thanks so much for listening. The theme music for Chordscast is borrowed with permission from Scott Holmes's song, So Happy. To learn more about Sanford Research and our registry, Chords, 
visit us at sanfordresearch.org slash chords. We'd love to hear from you. Send us your questions, comments, stories, or feedback to chords at sanfordhealth.org. Find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Sanford Chords. The content of Chordscast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. We'll see you next time on Chordscast.